we want to give you our yes this morning. We say yes to your influence in our hearts. We say yes to uh, surprises. Would you please surprise us? Even in the unlikely places where we have perhaps stopped believing you. Would you please come and do that? Come and fill everything because you are supreme. Thank you for every good gift. We say yes to your purposes. We say no to fear. We say yes to your purposes. We say no to unbelief. We say yes to faith. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, and I'm going to invite those who are going to help us uh, gather the offerings this morning to come forward. And uh, while they do, I just want to let you know that uh, parents, later on after the sermon, we're going to be celebrating communion together. So if you have not taken the time to prepare your children, uh, we encourage you to uh, take some time um, outside of the service, perhaps today to orient your children. There's a resource in the cafe you can use to um, teach and walk your children and prepare them. But they're going to be coming back uh, into the service for communion. So just want to give you that piece of orientation. You guys can go ahead and collect the offerings. And I'm going to dismiss the children first grade through fifth grade. If you guys can quietly meet Mr. Angelo, who is in the back. Just walking slowly. That would be great. Thank you. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. And invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be. are some powerful words, aren't they? Aren't they? These are words that are worth savoring. Take them in deep in your soul because they are such an amazing and beautiful picture of who Jesus is and what he's like. So I would say to you, these words are worth your time today. 
They're worth memorizing. They're worth exploring. They're worth unpacking. They're worth reading on a daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly basis. And I would say to us, church, we need to grasp these words deep in our hearts, in our souls, and in our minds. Because these words have the power to change your life, especially everyone hearing this today. Now, we're just going to scratch the surface of exploring these words, probably more like a survey. So I encourage you to continue to dig into these words beyond what we, what we cover today. So we've got a lot to talk about. So these words uh, were likely originally written as a poem, and we have them because a man named Saul who was a highly trained, Old Testament literate, uh, rabbinically trained man, was going around and killing Christians. And while he was seeking to kill more, he encountered Jesus. And that encounter led to a name change from Saul to Paul, to where Jesus then sends Paul out to suffer and to proclaim the gospel. And so later, uh, Paul writes to a young man named Timothy, and it's actually Paul and Timothy who wrote these words down in Colossians 1 for us. And he uses this phrase to Timothy. He says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. It's a pretty significant phrase for us. And he says, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. Because Paul had been proclaiming those three short phrases about Jesus, to remember him, that he was raised from the dead, that he was descended from David, he gets locked up in jail. And it's in one of those instances where he's under arrest that he pins those words down for the Colossian church. So what I want to do for us today is I want to take this little pattern that Paul used. So we're going to remember Jesus. What's the next one? All right, just checking to see if you're with me. Raised from the dead, and then he's what? Descended from David. This is a little gospel pattern that I uncovered several years ago in reading through scripture. And it's something that I found to be uh, very helpful. It's something that I ask all of our youth leaders to memorize. I challenge student leaders to memorize it. I would encourage you as a church to memorize this because this is a pattern that Peter and John and Paul all use. Uh, it's in books like Revelation, it's in Philippians, it's in the book of Hebrews, even the writer of Hebrews used it. It's a very clear introduction that will give you clarity to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we know as, as we've been walking through Colossians that a man named Epaphras is the one who spoke to the Colossians uh, first, and so Paul writes them a letter later and he says that beautiful prayer that's on these boards behind us that we've been praying and learning, uh, and he's giving thanks to them, and then after he prays for them, Paul starts out with this amazing description of Jesus that we read. So I said it was in a poem form. So if it was in a poem form, it might look like this. So this is one example I found uh, of how it might look as a poem. So we're going to use this 2 Timothy 2.8 pattern to help give us some handles for this huge image of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about remembering Jesus, that has everything to do with his origin, so where he came from, his nature, the history that he represents, his teaching, the power that he had, the way he did life and his ministry and his sacrifice. So when you take that into consideration and you jump into this first stanza of this poem, it says he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him or created through him and for him. So the first thing that I would want you to see out of this is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So I'm writing these up here so they'll stay in front of us as we go along. So what does that mean? How can he be the image of something that's invisible? So N.T. Wright uses this fantastic analogy. He says, if I couldn't see something that was around the corner because it was hidden, I could set up a mirror in such a way that I could then show what's on the other side of the wall. So Jesus metaphorically is the image of the invisible God. So this is what you look like from my perspective. How you look today. Am I holding it right? Can you guys see yourselves? There we go. We're good to go. This way? There we go. All right, you guys good? See, the image is not a copy. It's a reflection of you. It's the real you that you see in this mirror. It's not an imagination. It's not a reproduction. It's not some cool clip art. So when it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that literally means he is God. That's a hard one for us, though, right? Because how can, how can Jesus and God be the same thing? That's a hard one for us. And then we even get into this whole notion of the next part of this where it says he's the firstborn of all creation. So that's a really challenging one. Firstborn of all creation. It was amazing to me at how many scholars and commentaries struggled to explain that one. I'll simplify it for you really clearly, okay? When it says he's the firstborn over all creation, that means he's God's firstborn. I think we get that one. But it seemed like it was so overly complicated. So I tried to unpack it a little bit to understand why it was so complicated. Because I think what Paul is writing here is that this is about the incarnation and God taking on flesh, coming down to earth in the form of Jesus Christ. Because I would say to you, the birth of Jesus is not the beginning of Jesus. That's just the manifestation of God on the earth. Jesus was not an afterthought of God. He wasn't created by God in space somewhere and then sent. Jesus has always existed, just like God and the Holy Spirit have always existed. But as humans, we have such a hard time understanding that. And the reason we have a hard time understanding that is because it's this thing called the doctrine of the Trinity, it's really hard to get our minds around. It's like I've heard it described as like trying to take a bowling ball and fit it in a brown paper lunch sack. It's just not going to work. So I thought, what better way to illustrate the Trinity than to give you a very sarcastic, satirical cartoon that would maybe unpack it for us a little bit. So this is going to look at some bad analogies that get used about the Trinity and then try to bring some clarity. So I hope this won't be offensive to anybody. If it is, I apologize, but feel free to laugh because it's meant to be funny, okay? So let's take a look at this. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple, okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. 
uh, Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms, liquid and ice and vapor. That's mortalism, Patrick! What? Mortalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Uh, okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like... Uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm gonna stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously. I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an animal. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? <laughs> yeah, quit beating on the horse, Patrick. <laughs> Every time I watch that, I just have to laugh. So I don't know if you caught it. This is what he said at the end. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason. We can't fully get it. It's knowable, but yet it's still a mystery. It's best understood by faith, because if we had a God that we could 100% comprehend all the time, why would we need him? He's beyond us. He's different. But because of Christ, we see the tension of the incarnation and the Trinity, and it calls us to a greater level of faith, because we can't completely understand God, so there needs to be an element of trust. So you have Jesus being the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We see those things, but he's one more that's here. Did you see it? Right? He's the creator of all things. That's a big one. He's the creator of all things. So I want you to see that. So every ruling uh, faction, every throne, every dominion, every authority that exists on the planet was created by Jesus. It was created through him and for him. Do you know why that when you put people in leadership and then it goes wrong, everything gets really bad? Because it's no longer accomplishing what it was intended for. We have plenty of bad leaders out there. We have plenty of misguided leaders, and it's because they're not using their role for Christ. 
It's a significant, significant thing. So I want you to see this, because this is a hard one for us, too. Well, if Jesus was born from Mary, but he was there with God in the beginning, how does that work? I want you to see something. So we're going to take a look way back at Genesis 1. So you see, God said, let there be light. Who said it? Okay. God said, let the expanse of the waters, right? Then let the waters and the heavens be gathered together. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. God said, let there be lights in the expanse. God said, let the waters swarm and let the birds fly. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. It looks like God's doing all the stuff. But watch what happens on day six. God said, let us make man in our image. It shifts to plural. Have you ever wondered why things are so weird for you? That you have this physical nature about you but there's also this spiritual side of you where you can talk to yourself in an inner monologue without actually talking because you were created in a Trinitarian image. You were created to have a visible side and a physical side and a spiritual side. You were made to be one that would rule and subdue the earth and to have some sort of authority yet always be under authority. That's an image of the Trinity is the way you are made. So that's the way Jesus made it. And you were made for him. You were made through him for him. But let's be honest, it doesn't always work out that way, does it? So if I had to give, if I had to ask you to give me a percentage on how much of your life was actually being lived for Jesus who created you, what percentage would you give yourself? Would you give yourself a 10%, 50%? Nobody is 100%. I can prove that to you in one question. Have you ever told a lie? There goes the 100%. See, unfortunately, sin has wrecked that creation, and it's left it ruined and tainted and stained. So I want you to see that. So we see right out of the gate on this that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation, and he is the creator of all things. Those are significant statements, but Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on and he says, remember Jesus because he was raised from the dead. So this has everything to do with his fulfillment, his sacrifice, his grace and mercy, redemption, the victory that he accomplished, the future and a new creation. So if you were to take our, our poem and you were to lay out the beginning and the end of the poem next to each other, you would see they kind of parallel each other a little bit. You see the beginning here that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then the next part would say he's the beginning. He's the firstborn from among the dead. So I want you to see that, right? It says he's the beginning. Well, we're not going back and recapping everything. There's a significant change here. And so what I want you to see out of this one is that Jesus, um, I'm sorry, here we go. He's the beginning of a new creation. Can you guess what that new creation is? Can you guess it? Look at the verses. He's the beginning of a new creation, and it's a new creation that conquers death. It's a creation that is no longer subject to decay, is no longer subject to the final outcome of sin, where sin takes us all to the grave. So Jesus becomes the beginning of a new creation where death is done away with. See, take a look at that. He's the beginning. He becomes the firstborn from the dead. Now, it's interesting to me that Scripture paints Jesus as having two births. 
You know what they are? First one was of water from Mary. The second one was out of the grave by the Spirit. I think this might be in part what Jesus is talking about when he talks to Nicodemus. He said, if anyone would see or enter the kingdom of God, they must be born again. He's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about Jesus conquering death by going through death. The resurrection, make sure you guys get this one. This is everything to Christianity. If you take away the resurrection, you disembowel the faith. It no longer has any impact because Jesus becomes a dead ruler like all the others. But he's one that came back to life. And it frames for us a new way to live where death doesn't ultimately win. Isn't that good news? See, it establishes, with that, it establishes an eternal accountability. Because if this life is all you have, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. But this is not all there is. There's an eternity on the other side. And the very things that we do now are actually recorded in books in heaven and will be read aloud one day. Listen to these words from Revelation. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. How do the dead stand? We're not talking about zombies here. We're talking about resurrected people standing before God. And it says, another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So the dead are not just standing there like aimless people. They're standing there as people raised to life. And we seem to be okay with the part of the story that says Jesus came back to life, but we have a hard time grasping that that means we will come back to life too. It's two of my favorite verses in all of scripture. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. Look at the last part. He will raise us also. And because we know that one who was raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ, he will raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. You're going to stand there before God one day with the Apostle Paul. You're going to stand there with Adam and Eve, and you can look Adam in the face and say, why, dude? You're going to need those times. That becomes very scary for us, that everything we've ever done would be recorded in a book and would be read out loud before all of humanity that's ever existed. That's scary, isn't it? I guarantee you there are things that every one of us have in those books that we would rather not be there. So let's not forget the reason that Jesus came and why the resurrection matters. Jesus came to reconcile all things and to make peace by his blood that was shed on the cross. I want you to see that. See, Pastor Isai, so reconcile means to restore friendly relations where things that were hostile now become friendly, and peace being that of wholeness. And so if you were here for Christmas Eve, Pastor Isai uh, talked about something incredible. So these were the where you saw those in those verses. He talked about these tribes where a missionary went. They were cannibal tribes. So what do cannibals do? They eat each other, right? So these tribes were killing and eating each other. And a missionary went there to preach Christ to this tribe. And he found out that in order for these tribes to make peace, excuse me, in order for these tribes to make peace, they had to come up with a way to do it. So what they would practice would be childhood peace or child peace, where each tribe would give a baby to the other tribe. And as long as that child was alive, there was peace between the two tribes. 
Think about that, right? Because the other tribe would not want to go kill the other tribe and possibly kill their own kid. So there's a, an exchange of, of a person for a peace between two warring factions. And when I heard Esau say that, the thought went through my mind that he just explained everything that's wrong with American Christianity. And I'll unpack that for you a little bit. I tried to flip the story in my mind. I thought if I knew nothing about America and I came here to be a missionary to preach the gospel, what I would do is I would look for a cultural parallel to the gospel and I would use that cultural parallel and I would find a way to preach. And the best way to do that in our culture is through the medium of debt. Everybody's got debt somewhere, unless you've been wise and gone through Kevin's Financial Peace University course and followed those steps. Shameless plug for you, dude. But you see, way back in the day when I first became a Christian, there was actually a youth group that was handing out uh, little credit cards with Jesus' name on it. Because they were trying to preach the gospel through that mode. See, obviously you get it, right? Sin has created a debt between us and God, and the debt is so big that we can't ever pay it off. So lucky us, Jesus steps in and pays that card off. So here, take this card to remind you what Jesus has done. And that makes me so sad. Yes, there is a forgiveness. There is a debt that you can't pay. But you see where this breaks down, right? Well, if Jesus has paid off the card, we got a zero balance. Let's go run this sucker up again. When it gets too big for us again, we'll cry out to Jesus again. And we'll go through this debt payment over and over and over again. It's kind of wrecked the church in some ways. And I would say to us, this is not the gospel. Jesus did not come to bankroll your sin. He came to redeem your soul for him. He doesn't want to reconcile you to friendly relationships with sin. He wants to reconcile you to himself. He did not pay for your sin just so you can keep doing it by the shedding of his blood. He paid for a reforging of a relationship between you and him. So does Jesus forgive? Absolutely. But forgiveness is not the end game for God. Restored relationship to him is. And it becomes a relationship where you hear his voice and you obey it. So you see how much we're, we're learning here. We're seeing Jesus is the image of God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the creator of all things. He's the beginning of a new creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the reconciler and the peacemaker. Are you getting excited, friends? But listen, there's more. We didn't stop there, did we? He's descended from David. This has everything to do with his lordship his authority, his rule, and his reign, his position, his place in the cosmos, and the eternity that he gives. See, God had promised to David that one day a descendant would come that would sit on his throne forever and rule the people. Well, how can you sit on the throne forever? It's only one way, and that's if you never die. Well, look at what Jesus did. He conquered death by going through it. See, that ruler that sits on the throne is Jesus. Jesus is God. He's the creator. He's the firstborn of God. He's the firstborn from among the dead. He's the one who made all those rulers, all those thrones, all those dominions, and all those authorities, and he sits over all of them. That means all of the things that you see are under his rule. Even if it's not going well at the moment, it still sits under his rule. He's the only one that can rightly be over it all and in it all. So one of the things 
that Jesus creates as part of his ruling authority is he creates this wonderful thing called the church. So he said he's the head of the church. So what does that mean? Right? He's the head of the church. So I want to show you, it says he's the head of the body of the church. This is uh, verse 18. It's the first part of it. So I want to unpack that for you a little bit. Some of you have seen this verse before, right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that preached in the mode where basically it says the husband has to die. That's an easy one, right? Just, just go ahead. Go ahead. I've heard it, I've heard it preached in a way that the husband has to die to make the wife happy over and over again which then can go taken to an extreme where the husband can never have a hobby, never have a hope, never have a dream, never have an original thought because they have to constantly die. But I wanna do something with you this morning. I wanna take the husbands out of that verse for a minute. And this is what it looks like. Because the problem with this verse is there's actually a comma on the end, so it doesn't stop there. So look at the whole thing. We're gonna take the husbands out for a second. Let's look at how Christ is the head of the church. Christ loved the church and gave, him up, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Look at how Jesus leads his church. I broke it down for you. Do you want that kind of leadership? Men, I'll tell you, it's impossible for you to be the head in your household if you don't let Jesus do these things for you and in you. Let Jesus sanctify you. Let his sacrifice, that reconciliation and that peace, let it be a part of you. Let him be the one that presents you to himself. Let him be the one that takes away your spots and your wrinkles so that you know how to do that for your wife or for others that you would lead. It's a big shift for us. Let's go after the whole thing. So Christ is the head of the church. That's how he leads. Men, do you want leadership like that? Women, do you want men to lead like that? Then I would encourage you, encourage the men's relationship with Jesus. That's a huge opportunity. So we've seen all these things, but there's more He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he holds us all together. He holds it all together. That's a significant thing. So I want to talk to you about something that um, I learned this from a guy named Louis Giglio. Maybe some of you know him. Uh, Steve Van Zura looks a lot like him, if you know Steve. Um, <laughs> He tells this story about a time where he encountered a molecular biologist. And he told him about this protein in the body that's called laminin. Anybody ever heard of it? So this is what laminin does. Laminins critically contribute to cell attachment and differentiation, cell shape and movement, maintenance of tissue and promotion of tissue survival. Without the protein laminin, your cells don't know where to go. They don't know how to decide if they're going to be a liver cell or a lung cell. They talk about, they kind of influence things on how they're going to be shaped, 
where they're going to move to, how they're going to maintain themselves, and the way that your body survives. Sounds pretty cool, right? Some of you are like, what is he talking about? Well, let me show you what it looks like. Do you get it? Lamin informs the shape of a cross. <coughs> Is it any surprise to you that what holds you together looks like what Jesus went to do? It's the shape of the cross of our Savior. Something inside of you that's influencing and directing where things go and how you maintain and how you live. It's in the shape of something that represents Christ for us. Scientists are really up in arms about this, that Christians would use this as an example. So don't let them take it away from you. The illustration here is that Jesus is the one that's holding all things together. I want you to see that. So we've seen so far, Jesus is the image of God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the creator of all things. He's the beginning of a new creation, the firstborn from among the dead. He's the reconciler, the peacemaker, the head of the church, and the one who holds it all together. That's incredible, right? But there's more. There's one more thing. You ready? Our verse said preeminent, but there's some other verses that say, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. I want you to see that. So when you go all the way back to the beginning, he is here in the beginning. He's the one that made it all. He ushered in a new creation. He's the one that sits over it all and holds it all together. That in everything, Christ would be first. He is the supreme over everything. I want you to get that one. So take a look at our whole passage again. This is a big deal. He is all of the things that are represented in here. Some of the ones we didn't talk about will show up later in the series. And I would say to us, I would say that here at Living Faith, we talk a lot about being in a process. Everybody's moving towards being more like Christ. We call that sanctification. We believe that process is necessary. We believe that process is loving. To talk about your mess is actually a very qualifying thing for us as a church. And we believe that you have to deal with what's going on inside of you and what's going on in your heart. But I want to be honest, the world offers you a process too. Have you noticed it? It might look a little different, right? If you don't like your looks, go get some extreme surgery or some extreme diet. If you don't like your spouse, just get a divorce and get a new one. If you don't like your kids, just ignore them. Eventually they'll leave. And if you still can't do that, just stick a screen in their face. If you don't like your emotions, you can drink, smoke, take drugs, eat, or cut them away. Don't like pain? Just run or move as far away as you can. If you don't want to be honest, just lie or pretend or always think that somebody's calling you. If you don't like how people think of you, just rebrand yourself or indulge in more experiences to make yourself more attractive to others. If you don't feel happy, just go do whatever your heart tells you. See, the world offers you all kinds of ways to deal with your mess. But I want to tell you something, that in the church, when we talk about dealing with your mess, we have the very one thing that the world cannot offer you, and that is a supreme Christ. 
See, there's no course of action or behavior or career or money or philosophy or intellect that can specifically drive your life. So you will never uh, have something from the world that will enter your life in such a way that will actually redeem it, validate it, reclaim it, reorient it, transform it, or reconcile it, or provide you love and peace, because those things only come from Christ. So I started putting this verse in front of people leading up to this message, and I asked them this question. Let me get that. There we go. How does this help you in what you're going through right now? How does Christ being the image of the invisible God help you right now? How does the fact that he is the one that holds all things together help you right now? I was kind of stunned at some of the answers I got. Like there were some that, that kind of took the, the basic road of, all right, I think there's some kind of Christian answer here, so I'll try to give you one. But the two most honest answers I got was where somebody said, said, I know this is true in my head, but when stuff's going on in my life, I don't feel it at all. Another person looked square at this text and said, I got nothing. See, I'm stunned over and over again at how little Christians want to talk about Jesus. Like we seem more concerned with expressing our views about uh, how much we like the preaching or how much we like the music or don't like them. We express views about demons and the, the, uh, uh, the end times and the rapture. We've got all kinds of opinions about all those things. I've even seen Christians stand up stronger for dating and not dating than they've stood up for Christ. And it's, it's just uncanny to me. I bring up Jesus in conversation after conversation, how quickly somebody will change the subject. Now, please don't get me wrong. Nothing wrong with talking about any of those things. So I'm not condemning or demeaning anyone for talking about them. But why don't we talk about those things as they pertain to Jesus? Somehow we've seemed to miss this, but it's so obvious. See, Jesus is supreme in all things, and he wants to be supreme in every area of your life. We know there's this big supreme God out here, but sometimes we don't connect that to the now, to what's going on. So I want to give you some. I'm going to call these gospel battlefields. You can put anything in that blank, and you can ask the question, will whatever goes in that blank be supreme, or will Christ be supreme? So I'll share one of mine with you. I have this sense and this feeling. I get these, these accusations that come my way every time I teach or train people or speak. And it goes like this. Every time you speak, someone gets mad. You don't really have anything to say. They're not going to like you. You should just shut up, stupid. You don't know enough to really teach people. That's a gospel battlefield for me. Every time I do this, I have to ask this question, will the fear of man be supreme or will Christ be supreme? You have to do the same. Will selfishness be supreme or will Christ be supreme? Will materialism be supreme or will Christ be supreme? Will being intellectually superior be supreme or will trusting Jesus be supreme? Will my way be supreme or will Christ's will be supreme? Will bitterness be supreme? Will revenge or vengeance be supreme? Will indulgence or my broken heart or my circumstances, will those be supreme or will Christ be supreme? Will my conflict or my career be supreme or will Christ be supreme? You see where this goes? 
He didn't say he wants to be supreme in all things except whatever you want to hold back from him. He said he wants to be supreme in everything. So I want to extend an invitation to you today to seek Jesus. Seek him with your whole heart. Take all of this mess that's your life, this amazing, beautiful disaster, and bring it before Jesus. It says you will seek him and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart. If you're not finding him, what are you holding back? That's a promise he gave. Put it all out there and watch what only Jesus can do. See, I once heard it said that if you could get a glimpse of Jesus, you would crawl across the burning desert full of razor blades just to be near him. See, we've just scratched the surface of these words today. The Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, including you, things in heaven and on earth, things that are visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, be supreme. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, including you and your mess, whether on heaven, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by his blood that he shed on the cross. So we're going to end our time with communion. The kids are gonna come back in and join us. But I wanna put it out in front of you today that if it's your honest desire that you wanna fight these gospel battlefields, that's what we call it, the fight of faith, that you wanna run to Jesus, you wanna trust him with those things, and communion is for you. So the bread represents his body, it's broken for you. Cup represents his blood that was poured out to give you reconciliation and peace. So I invite you to participate in this time of communion and just receive that today. Receive his reconciliation. Call out to him in faith. Ask him to bring peace to what's going on inside of you and your life. Let him awaken a wow for you. So I'll leave these faith talk questions on the screen while we take communion. But which aspect of Christ creates the most wow in your hearts? There ought to be something out of here. Right? I encourage you to process that. So let me pray, and then when you're ready, you'll be able to come and take communion. you've shown us what you're like you've shown us what God is like and that God was willing to take on flesh to suffer the most brutal kind of death, the most humiliating kind of death and to, to defeat it so today God we proclaim that truth again as we take communion that you are our reconciler and our peacemaker I pray, God, that all over this room, there would be a new day of reconciliation, a new day of restoring of a friendly relationship between you and us. 
And would you wash away the sin? Would you help us to stop craving it? Would you help us to press into you and the amazing things that you offer? Give us the courage to listen to your voice and follow it, even when it seems scary, because we know that in the end, you're going to hold all things together. Would you help us today? We pray in your name. Amen. Whenever you're ready, you guys can come and take communion.